All right, come on in uh, tonight. We're going to be continuing our study of Under the Radar, a study of the Bible's unsung heroes. And over the past eight weeks, uh, we have been examining some of the Bible's most unsung uh, figures, some of the greatest figures who have gone many years or many times without the adequate spotlight that they deserve. We've been looking at men and women from the Old and New Testaments who made an immeasurable impact on the scope of the eternal will of God. And we've been seeing how God chose them. Each and every instance of the lessons we've been going through, God chose them to be the fulcrum of their stories. We've been noticing that God, He could have chosen so many others people in these stories to do the things that these people did. But isn't it amazing that God chose these unsung heroes? Isn't it amazing how God chose Mordecai to save the Hebrew nation from annihilation in the book of Esther? He chose him because of his persistently humble faith. God chose Mordecai. God chose Luke to preserve the life of Jesus, to preserve the life of the church and the life of Paul because he knew Luke had the attention to detail. He had the heart that was needed to do such a job. He was the physician. And he was the perfect man to fulfill this task. God chose Luke. God chose Shifra, Pua, and Jehoshaba to save an entire generation of Hebrew boys. And the lights go down. That, I believe the lights are going to be down for a second. Um, Shifra and Pua did not fear the dark. Um, let's see here. I will preach in the dark. Y'all have no idea what I'm capable of. All right, Rich Whedon has told me to preach on, and so I shall. Shifra, Pua, and Jehoshaba saved the entire nation of Israel when it comes to that generation of boys who would one day become the leaders of Israel. And then we know Jehoshaba saved the bloodline of Jesus that would one day lead to our Savior and Messiah. And he saved him from that evil queen, Athaliah. We saw that God chose Andrew to be one of the twelve apostles because he knew that Andrew would bring others to Jesus. And in doing so, he set an example that 2,000 years later we are still learning. There we go. How to bring others to Jesus because God chose Andrew. We saw how God chose Caleb as one of the twelve spies because he knew that Caleb was all in and that Caleb wholly followed him even when the overwhelming majority would not. And even when his life was threatened, he followed God because Caleb was all in. We saw how God chose Dorcas because she was one of the pillars of the church. He chose her because she needed to be raised from the dead because of her servant heart. He noticed that the loss of her influence, example, and kindness was just simply too great for the pain that the church would have to endure and withstand. God chose Dorcas. And then last week we were studying how God chose Jonathan to be the friend, to be the companion, to be the encouragement that David needed to make it through the trials and loneliness that he had to face. And he gave Jonathan to David because he knew that Jonathan would deny himself. He would deny his throne, he would deny his fame, and he would deny his future simply for the sake of God's anointed. God chose Jonathan. And as tonight, as, as we continue to try to find out where we fit into the body of Christ, as we seek to discover what role God wants us to play in the family of God, 
We may not be able to be a hero that gets sermon after sermon or article after article or Bible class after Bible class, but we can be like these figures who flew under the radar as we come to the realization of what God has chosen us to do the way He chose these others. And with that, we're ready to begin our study tonight. Tonight, we are back in the New Testament. Go ahead and be turning there in the New Testament. We'll be studying about a man from Jerusalem. He was a Hellenist, a man whose reputation preceded him. A man whose life was full of wisdom. His soul was full of the Holy Spirit. He was a man who could not go unheard. A man who preached one of the greatest sermons of all time just to face one of the greatest rejections of all time. Tonight, we're going to be studying the life and the impact of Stephen. Now, I know many of you may be thinking tonight, I thought this study was about unsung heroes. I thought this study was about all of the, the heroes of the Bible who went unsung, who, who went undetected without the spotlight. Stephen is not one of those. I've heard many sermons on Stephen. I've Heard many classes on Stephen. I've seen a lot of articles on Stephen. This is not a figure who went undetected in Scripture. This person did not lack the spotlight. He gets plenty of spotlight. But tonight, I don't want to simply just look at the life of Stephen, to look at the great things he did. I want to look at the way his life impacted the future generations that would come after him how his life impacted the church over the next two centuries after his life. And that's who we're going to be looking at tonight, the life of Stephen. And his story begins in Acts chapter 6. If you'll go ahead and turn there with me in Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, we're going to start reading about one of our unsung heroes. Guess who recorded this? Luke. He was earlier in our study this quarter. But he records this story in Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. We'll stop right there. So here in the early stage of the church, we see that the apostles were going from house to house, they were going from city to city, they were going from place to place, and they were preaching, they were teaching, and they were baptizing people. They were making disciples. What does that sound like? Well, it sounds like the Great Commission. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, right? Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. That's exactly what we find the apostles doing here in Acts chapter 6. They were preaching, they were teaching. And so in all of that proclaiming the good news, there were some needs that were not being met when it came to those who were already saved. These widows that had needs within the church. And so the apostles charged them, they, they challenged them to pick from among them seven men to fulfill this task. But notice the qualifications it says that these men needed to have. In verse 3 it says that they needed to be of good reputation. They needed to be of good reputation. They, they needed to be full of the Holy Spirit. They needed to be full of wisdom. And when you find these seven men, they're going to be able to take care of all these fires while we continue to spread the gospel. You know, some have believed that this is the first institution of deacons that we find in the Scriptures. Let's go ahead and continue in verse 5. It says, And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed... They laid hands on them, and then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient 
to the faith. And so let's think about this for a moment. Out of all of the options that the people had to choose, out of all of the multiple thousands of men that they probably could choose from, that had already put on the name of Jesus, go back to chapter 2, we see in the, at Pentecost 3,000 people obeyed the gospel, and then we know about the multiplying that took place after that. So potentially at this time, there were thousands of choices that could have been one of these seven men. But notice, out of all those choices, Stephen was chosen. And it says that the apostles laid their hands on the seven. Notice before we move on, just simply the fact that Stephen was chosen tells you what? Well, it tells you that he fit the qualifications. It tells you that he was of good reputation, that he was full of the Holy Spirit, that he was full of wisdom. And so after they got these seven men, they chose them to handle all these issues that would arise when it comes to those who had already been saved so that the apostles could spread the word of God to those who had not been saved yet. And what does the text say in verse 7? It says, The word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. So the gospel, the borders of the kingdom, was multiplied because of this decision. It even says, this was interesting to me, that a great many of the priests were leaving Judaism. A great many of the priests left Judaism to follow Christ. You know, before we move on, it's interesting. Stephen may not have been able to be one of the twelve. But Jerusalem didn't need him to be one of the twelve. They needed him to be one of the seven. And because he was willing to be one of these seven, the borders of the kingdom grew exponentially. And as we think about what it takes to be a leader, that's exactly what it takes. To do what is best for the success of whatever you're doing instead of thinking about what is best for yourself, your fame, and your own desires, and your name. Stephen did not care about being one of the twelve so long as the church needed him to be one of the seven. And in that light, we see that Stephen was unequivocally one of the first and greatest leaders in all the book of Acts and really in the whole New Testament. He was a leader who would then become known as a worker. Let's continue to read in chapter 6, verse 8. It says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders, and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looked steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Let's stop right there. So as we've just discussed, not only is Stephen one of the greatest leaders, he is also one of the greatest workers. Let's look back at verse 8, what it says about him. It says that he was full of faith. It says that he was full of power. He did great wonders and signs among the people. Have you ever thought about the miracles that Stephen may have performed? You know, we don't know what he did, what miracles he did, what powers he displayed through the power that God had given him. But can you imagine what the potential is of the amazing supernatural things that God did through him? How many people were probably and potentially brought to Christ because of that great faith and power and wisdom and teaching that he gave? Stephen is being one of the most successful leaders in all the church here. It doesn't tell us what the other six did that were chosen. It tells us what Stephen did. Stephen was full of faith, full of power. He did great wonders 
and signs among the people. What an amazing sentence. And you know, just like in life, when you start having some success, there's going to be some people who want to have something to say about that. There's going to be some people who want to bring you down, right? As soon as Stephen starts having the success he had, performing the great miracles, showing, displaying his faith, someone had a problem with him. And even though they were not able to resist the wisdom, it says they could not resist the things he was saying. Because of the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke, they couldn't resist it. They couldn't refute it. They couldn't dispute it. Some of the men of the synagogue started a dispute with Stephen. Notice what they do. The text says that they start basically start a rumor about him. They bring this totally baseless claim up. And this baseless claim, this rumor, stirs the people up, it says. And then they brought him to the Sanhedrin. And when they got to the Sanhedrin, they went around and they set up false witnesses. Turn your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 and 19. If you're to turn there, you're going to find the six things that God hates. Yes, the seven that are an abomination to Him, right? And in that list of things, guess what one of them is? One of those things is someone who is a false witness or someone who tells lies. So back in our text, in Acts chapter 6, that's what the people of God were doing. This Jewish Sanhedrin were creating false witnesses. They were lying. They were liars. At least the people that brought them to the Sanhedrin were, and we know that what the Sanhedrin was capable of based on what's about to happen. But the very people of God, the people that should be proclaiming God's Mosaic Covenant where it tells us, you know, not to lie. The people that knew the six things that God hates, the seven that are abomination to Him, here they are bearing false witness. Here they are telling lies. And the text blatantly shows that. And so we see now that Stephen has been brought to the biggest fraud of a council in all the day named the Jewish Sanhedrin. And we're going to find one of the greatest leaders of the church, one of the greatest workers of the church, is about to become one of the greatest preachers in the church. And what Stephen does in chapter 7 is nothing short of flawless. Nothing short of amazing what Stephen does in chapter 7. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. In verse 11, Jesus said, Now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And so remember, as we go back to our text, that Stephen was a man that was full of the Holy Spirit. A man that had the apostles' hands laid on him a man that the people could not resist the wisdom and spirit from which he spoke. And so here he is before the Jewish Sanhedrin. And he's about to preach one of the greatest sermons of all time. Before the Jewish Sanhedrin, the authority of the Jews, the, the highest council in all the land. And as he walks in, half of the room is going to be full of Pharisees, the people responsible for killing Jesus the people responsible for hedging all the lies about Jesus. There's half the room. And then the other half of the room is full of Sadducees who do not believe in the afterlife, do not believe in the resurrection, do not believe in anything about the afterlife. That's the other half of the room. Neither side of the room believe Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And the whole room is probably growing increasingly more and more opposed to Christianity. Why? Because priest after priest is leaving Judaism. We just read it in chapter 6, verse 7. Many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Of course these Pharisees and Sadducees have had enough. 
They've already dealt with Peter and John back in chapter 3 and in chapter 5 and back in what Jesus did. They're sick and tired of Christianity. And when they thought about Christianity, they probably looked at Stephen as one of the reasons why this was happening. They probably looked at Stephen as one of the main antagonists to this story. And so this was their chance to get him told. But what does Stephen do here? Does he skirt around the truth? Does he try to hide from what he believes? Does he do this in a way that is weak or shy? Or does, what, what does he do next? Well, what Stephen does next is clearly one of the most convincing, one of the most compelling, one of the most convicting apologetics of all Scripture. One of the greatest defenses for Jesus as the Christ that these people had ever heard to that point. That the Sanhedrin had ever heard. And so what he does in verse 1, he starts out, verse 2, he starts out at the beginning. From the very beginning of the Hebrew faith, we know that God chose Abraham. And he started a covenant with him to start this nation. And so he talks about the circumcision and, and the promise that God made to Abraham. And he talks about what it meant. And he slowly but surely goes all the way throughout the Old Testament explaining to them what happened. He, he moves on from Abraham and goes to the life of Joseph about how they were in the land of Egypt and how he brought his twelve brothers there and they multiplied and lived until the coming of a new Pharaoh who dealt treacherously with them, Stephen says. And he put them in bondage for 400 years. Just continue in your text with me as we just glance at chapter 7. He then goes on to talk about Moses and the Mosaic Covenant, the Ten Commandments. He reminds them about how in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15, Moses foretold the prophet that was going to be raised up from among them and that he was going to be the one that they should hear. He talks about how that prophet was there in the wilderness. That prophet was there at Sinai. The prophet was there in the days of Joshua as they conquered the nation. And how he was there in the days of David and Solomon. And, and that gets all the way up to verse 50, right? And I want to just stop right there and just ask you to think about what's just happened. Stephen has for the first time in, in, in their hearing explained to them from Abraham all the way to Jesus about God's providential plan. He has finally explained to them what this is all about. It's impossible for us not to imagine their reaction. As Stephen flawlessly gives this perfect chronological timeline of events, interwoven with the evidence of God's providential plan leading up to Jesus. Can you imagine as, they, as he's talking about Abraham and the covenant and the circumcision, all the Pharisees and Sadducees just nodding along? Yep, I've heard that before. That's good. I agree with that. Can you see him as he starts talking about Moses? Can you see the Sanhedrin going, yep, that's about right. I know that story. Moses, great leader. I totally agree with that. And as he progresses to talk about David and Solomon, can you see them nodding their heads? Yep, I agree with that. David, Solomon, great leaders, love it. But as any great preacher or any preacher worth his salt, he doesn't just tell them the things that they want to hear or the things that they're you know, totally comfortable hearing. He doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop at where they are comfortable. He continues to preach a message that they needed to hear most. Verse 51 of Acts chapter 7, it says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and in ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. And which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Now let's stop right there. Let's just think about what Stephen has just done in this sermon. I mean, he calls them stiff-necked. You know what that means? It means stubborn. You stubborn people. 
Why were they stubborn? Because he says they were uncircumcised in heart and in ears. What does that mean? Well, the very sign that you were a Jew, that you were a follower of God, was your circumcision. That's what separated you according to their religion and their beliefs from the rest of the world. And what does he call them? He calls them uncircumcised. You know who he's talking to? He's talking to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the highest leaders of the land. And he's calling them stubborn. He's calling them uncircumcised. You know, I think I've said this before many years ago, but him saying, calling them uncircumcised is like me coming to an audience of this and saying, you unbaptized people? I mean, how offensive would that be? You've been baptized. You've done what it's needed for you to do to put on Christ. And if I were to come here and say, you unbaptized people, that would offend you, wouldn't it? It should. But that's what he does. He says, you uncircumcised in heart and in ears. What else did he say? They have resisted. They were resistors of what? The Holy Spirit. They were persecutors of what? God's prophets. It says that they were betrayers of God and that they were murderers of God's Son, their only Savior, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Stubborn, uncircumcised, resistor, persecutor, betrayer, murderer. And you thought that we stepped on toes here at Buford. No, I mean, this is the ultimate smackdown of a lifetime. Stephen is giving the Sanhedrin. Because he's basically mocking their ignorance, is he not? He's mocking every image of who they are supposed to be. Instead of a seeking people, seeking after God, they're stubborn and stiff-necked. Instead of circumcised, he says, you are uncircumcised. Instead of willing to obey, they have resisted. Instead of obedient to God's Word, they have persecuted it. Instead of being faithful to God, they have betrayed God. Instead of following the Messiah, they murdered Him. And so each and every turn, He is flipping their religion, their faith, everything they ever stood for on its head because they have been fraud. They have been fraudulent leaders of the law. And as one of the greatest leaders, one of the greatest workers, and one of the greatest preachers, preach this sermon, he's about to become the church's first martyr. Let's read verses 54 through 60. This is how they respond to Stephen's sermon. It says, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and they ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You know, back in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, we see the day of Pentecost. And we see a very similar sermon. Uh, I wouldn't say it was as in-depth. You know, with many other words, he encouraged them, right? We don't know what, what else Peter might have said back in Acts chapter 2 to challenge these, this, this audience, this great number before him, this multitude. We don't know what else Peter might have said, but we know that the result was the same, really. No, not the end result of baptisms and conversions, but we know the result was the same in that both audiences were cut to the heart, were pricked to the heart. Back in Acts chapter 2, Jesus told, tells them, you have murdered Jesus, both Lord and Christ. He tells them they were guilty of the blood of the Messiah, right? And that crowd there at Pentecost was cut to the heart. There's no difference in our text tonight. The Sanhedrin was cut to the heart. 
And as he tried to get them to look up at Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God, all they could do is look at him and look at their own sin and how grave it was. You see, because they couldn't refute the things that Stephen had said the same way the people from the synagogue of the freedmen could not resist the things that he was saying. This Sanhedrin could not refute, they could not dispute, they could not do anything but understand that this was the complete truth and that they were guilty of murdering their one and only Messiah. So how do they respond? You know, in Acts 2, that they, those who gladly received the word put on Christ, right? They were baptized into Christ. And the Lord added to the kingdom those daily who were being saved, verse 47, right? Is that how they respond here in Acts chapter 7? No. The text says that they gnashed their teeth at Stephen. You ever had someone gnash their teeth at you? I don't think I've ever had anyone that mad at me. Well, maybe I have. But they gnashed their teeth at him. The text says that they cried out with a loud voice. The text says that they stopped their ears. Why would they stop their ears? Why? Because they couldn't resist the things that he was saying. They stopped their ears. They ran at him and they took him outside of the city and they stoned him. And as Stephen was dying, he looked up and he begged God not to hold this sin on their account. Sounds an awful like, lot like what Jesus did, does it not? And one of the greatest leaders one of the greatest workers, one of the greatest preachers, and the church's first martyr had unknowingly become the greatest igniter for the cause of Christ and the spread of the gospel. Turn with me back to Acts chapter 5, if you will. In Acts chapter 5, we see in the beginning of verse 22 that Peter and John are back in prison from Acts chapter 3. They just left. They're back in prison and they're back before the Jewish Sanhedrin in chapter 5. The same Sanhedrin, probably the same exact group of men that Stephen was before in our study tonight. Peter and John, the two greatest pillars of the church, are before this same stubborn, resisting, persecuting, betraying, and murdering high council, the Jewish Sanhedrin. And there's only one factor as to why they didn't succumb to the same fate Stephen did. And his name is Gamaliel. Because Gamaliel, this man, stood up and calmed the fury of the Sanhedrin. We all probably, if you've been in the church long enough, know Gamaliel was one of the greatest scholars of the entire history of the Jews. He was the one who Paul sat at the feet of, right? He was one of the greatest rabbis in all the land. And he stands up in chapter 5, in verse 35, and says, And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain. And all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished. And all who obeyed him were, were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded them that it should no longer speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. So here in this text, we've seen that Gamaliel was the only reason that kept them from succumbing to the exact same fate of Stephen. Because he stood up and he reminds them of some people who have come before. And I do want to say tonight that I don't believe Gamaliel is expressing any type of belief in Jesus. 
Gamaliel is not trying to say that, hey, these guys, Peter and John, they're right. This Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's not trying to say that. I believe what Gamaliel is trying to get them to see is that he, he thinks this is just a fad. This is just a fad that's going to die out just like those others did. Christianity was going to be quenched the same way those other times were. He's like, guys, do y'all not remember those crazy followers of Thutis? You remember what happened to them when he died? All that followed him were scattered. And it says they came to nothing. Do y'all not remember those weirdos who followed Judas of Galilee? What happened to them after Judas died? All of his followers were dispersed. They were scattered and it came to nothing. So I just don't see the difference here, guys. Jesus was crucified. His followers are about to be scattered. And we're going to see if this thing is real or not. By the way, if it's real, we can't do anything about it. If it's not real, then it's going to resolve itself. Don't put the hand on these men. Let them go and it's going to come of nothing. Just trust me. That's what Gamaliel is trying to tell the Sanhedrin. He tells them that it will come to an end. They will be scattered. And if it is from God, they can't do anything about it. Back to our text in Acts chapter 8. Let's see what happens. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now Saul was consenting to his death. At the time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Stop there. So after the death of Stephen, guess what? Gamaliel was right. The church was scattered from Jerusalem and they went into Judea and Samaria. So Gamaliel had to be right. He was right that these followers were just like the followers of Thutis, just like the followers of Judas of Galilee. They scattered, they ran, they fled. Turns out this threat to Judaism was no match. This whole Christianity thing is going to die down. Look how scattered they've become. They fled to Judea and Samaria. We, did, we sure did teach them a lesson, didn't we? It's just going to be just like those other two times. Gamaliel, you are pretty smart. Three verse 4. Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the Word. So instead of dying down, instead of being quenched, instead of dissipating into ancient history, like all those other followers Gamaliel was talking about, the church being scattered was the best possible thing for the growth of the kingdom. When the church was scattered all throughout the land, that was the best time of growth. I want us to take a moment to realize the seismic shift that has just taken place here. Instead of Jerusalem being the hub of Christianity, the focal point, the center of the church, having to battle all of these Jewish Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all these other people, the gospel is now able to spread like wildfire throughout Judea and Samaria and would soon go to the uttermost parts of the world. Why? Why was this happening? Why were they scattered? Why were they able to grow? Turn to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11 and verse 19 tells us at what point this began. Acts chapter 11 and verse 19 it says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but Jews only. So the text tells us that they were scattered over that persecution that arose about Stephen. Turn back to chapter 1 of Acts. We've talked about this text many times lately. But 
realize this is the last words that Jesus ever said to his followers. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, it says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus said that it was going to happen, but he didn't say why or how or by what means this was going to occur. Obviously, the gospel of Christ was going to be spread, but at what point? What was the fulcrum moment where it could have gone one way or the other? What was the moment? The death of Stephen. It was at the death of Stephen that the church was scattered, which then fulfilled Jesus' final command that he gave his apostles in Acts chapter 1. Notice it says, back in chapter 8 and verse 4, those who were scattered whenever we were preaching the word. Acts chapter 11, it says that the persecution scattered them, and they spread the gospel to Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch. Acts chapter 8 and verse 1 tells us that they spread the gospel into Judea and Samaria. So what point was the point at which the gospel left Jerusalem? It was when Stephen was martyred. The death of Stephen was that catalyst that allowed the expansion of the gospel from Jerusalem so that it could go into Phoenicia so that it could go to Cyprus and Antioch, and so that Paul and others could one day go to Galatia, Philippi, Antioch, Ephesus, and Thessalonica. It's because of Stephen that the church had their resolve and was ignited. And the flame that was ignited was one that would never die out. And that's what makes him one of the unsung heroes of our story tonight, of our study this quarter, really. That is why Stephen is deserving of our attention tonight. And many lessons have been centered around him being a leader. Many lessons have perhaps talked about how he was a great worker. A lot of time has been centered around him being a great preacher. And of course, many sermons, so many sermons we probably can't know, have talked about him being a martyr. But tonight, with the rest of our time, I want to focus in on Stephen as the igniter. The man who ignited the resolve within the church to not be like the followers Gamaliel talked about with Thutis and Judas. When they were scattered after their leader died, it came to nothing. What's the difference? When Christians were scattered, they continued to preach the gospel. When Christians were scattered, they continued to preach the good news of Jesus. Instead of being like those who were scattered and came to nothing, they were a body of believers who when they were scattered only continued to multiply exponentially and turn the world upside down. You know, Gamaliel was right on two accounts, really, back in chapter 5, that these people would be scattered and that it was of God. He just didn't think it was. It is obvious that Christianity was from God because the church never wavered after they were scattered. And they were scattered as a result of Stephen's death. And because they continued to preach the word, nothing was able to stop it. Remember, Gamaliel said, if this is of God, nothing will be able to stop it. And that was exactly the case. When we think about the church and Christianity, the term scattered or the, of the dispersion is what the church will continue to be known throughout the rest of the New, the New Testament. If you look at James chapter 1 and verse 1, he says that this letter is to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. Years later, 
Decades later, they're still known as those 12, stri 12 tribes scattered abroad. Peter would do the same with his first epistle. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 1, he says, to the strangers dispersed or scattered. That's what the church was forever from, from that point on. When it comes to Christianity, it didn't matter that they were scattered. It mattered that they had a Christ, that they had a Savior, that they had a good news, that they had a gospel of soul salvation. So it didn't matter how far it was scattered or how much it was dispersed. It was going to succeed and grow. But the point at which it was scattered was the death of Stephen. And because of that, there's really no quantifiable way to understand the impact of the life of Stephen. You know, we haven't even discussed the impact Stephen had on the life of Paul. We haven't even discussed how Saul held the coats of the men who stoned him and how Saul would then go on to become Paul and then go on to become the church's greatest missionary and how he had that constant reminder of what it really means to suffer for the cause of Christ? How did he know? Because he witnessed Stephen firsthand. That's why he calls himself the least of all the saints. That's why he says, I am chief of all sinners. As Paul was going through all of the sufferings that he went through and endured, you have to think that Stephen's tremendous influence played a part. That because of what he did to Stephen, he deserves or is able to get through what he's getting. When he was stoned when he was striped, when he was naked, when he was without food, when he was shipwrecked, when he went through all the things he talks about. His greatest concern was for the church. Why? Because of people like Stephen. There's no way to understand the impact of Stephen. It's because of Stephen that the church spread and continue to spread and that we're able to be a part of it tonight. So you may be thinking that the clicker don't work and you're right. But you may be thinking tonight, how can I be like Stephen? You may be thinking to yourself, I'm not really a leader. I'm definitely not the worker I should be. I'm not the preacher. I'm definitely not a martyr, although some of us act that way. I don't know how to be an igniter, Ben. So how could I be like Stephen? Ben, you're right. The impact that Stephen had on the church was incalculable. How can I be like Stephen? How, how can I do it? You know, it's true that even though Stephen could not be one of those twelve in Acts chapter 6, even though Stephen was not chosen or given the responsibility of an apostle to spread the gospel and to minister to the furtherance of the kingdom, and he was simply tasked with serving tables, as the apostles would put it, even though Stephen was not able to be Peter or John and escape the Jewish Sanhedrin like they did in chapter 5, in his own way, Stephen furthered the kingdom more than Peter, John, or Paul ever did because of the life and impact that he had and because of the flame that he ignited that scattered the church throughout Judea and Samaria into the uttermost parts of the world. How can I be like Stephen? Every single person in this room and listening tonight can be a Stephen. Because when you really get down to it, all Stephen did throughout the beginning of his life, all the or beginning of what we hear about him in Acts chapter 6, all the way to chapter 8, all he did was inspire people 
Stephen inspired people. And he lit the flame that the next slide is going to talk about. He lit the flame that inspired everyone around him. Next slide. He inspired the Jerusalem church as a leader. He inspired the many he brought to the Lord as a worker. He inspired even the Sanhedrin. The text says it cut them to the heart. He did that as a preacher. And ultimately, he inspired the church as a martyr, which then made him the igniter that spread the kingdom throughout the world. Stephen inspired them the same way he inspires us tonight. And just like God did with those other unsung heroes, God chose him to do just that. So how can I be like Stephen? Well, you can choose to inspire in a world that has lost their inspiration. You can choose to inspire in a world that has lost their inspiration when it comes to their care of the Bible, when it comes to caring about worship, caring about living a righteous life. In a world that has lost inspiration, you can choose to inspire. You can inspire our brothers and sisters in Christ who have maybe lost the balance of their daily lives, maybe lost their priorities, maybe even lost their jobs. Some have lost their loved ones, we can choose to inspire them and be like Stephen. The way we can do that is we can aspire to the same qualifications Stephen met. Those same qualifications Stephen met, every one of us can meet. We can grow into being a person of good reputation. We can grow into become being filled with the Word of God. We can be filled with wisdom. We can be filled with faith and filled with the power of our conviction and beliefs. And even though we may not be able to perform miracles like Stephen did, we can be a great leader, a great worker, a great preacher, a great igniter. And if it comes to it, a great martyr. What an unsung hero that we've been able to study tonight. And I can't wait to meet Stephen one day. I don't know about you, but tonight he has inspired me to want to inspire others. And isn't that exactly what we need? We need to be inspired. And that ultimate inspiration comes from God's Word. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. Thank you. Noah Strickland is going to be closing this out in a word of prayer.